Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms, we'll look at two separate verses. One is Psalm 14, verse 1. And the other one is Psalm 53, verse 1. I'm beginning a five-part series this morning called Believe. Believe is perhaps the most important word in our Bibles because it is in believing in Jesus that we receive eternal life and the hope of heaven after we leave this walk of life. And all of that God gives to us when we simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he died on the cross for us and rose from the dead for us. Believe. Um, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, and as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God, even to all of those who believe on his name. Believe. Romans chapter uh, 10, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, For if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. You can see just in those three verses the importance of belief. And so believe is the title of this series and today we're going to begin very simply and yet profoundly uh, by believing in God. Psalm 14 verse 1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now turn to Psalm 53, verse 1. And what does it say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What about that? A verse so important that God saw fit to have it included twice in his word. There are 235 verses in all of the Bible that are repeated at least once. And this is one of those, this, this phrase, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, is one of 235 verses in the Bible that are repeated. Belief. The best place to start in, in discussing belief is the simple phrase, believe in God. That's where it all starts. Some people say, well, you believe, you start with the Bible. No, uh, even the Bible started first with God. It all starts with God. Everything starts with God. So, so believe in God. There was a, a Pew Research study that came out just a few years ago that, that talked about the decline uh, among uh, Americans who believe in God. There's still a vast majority of Americans who still believe in God. But of people 38, 30 years and under, 31%, almost one out of three, do not believe in the existence of God. That's 31%. Now, the good news of that is 69%, almost 70% believe in the existence of God. That's a great thing. But 31%, now here's the bad news, 50 years ago, that number was half. 
So in 50 years' time, the percentage of people under 30 who do not believe in God has doubled in comparison or in contrast to people over 65 years old, only 9% of those, one out of 10, but do not believe in the existence of God. You may know, you've, I know y'all are intelligent folks, you follow the news, uh, and there, there's a, a category in religious categories called the nuns, not N-U-N-S. We know about the, the Catholic nuns. This is N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. These are the folks who, on surveys, when they're asked what their religious affiliation is, they check the box that says none, no religious affiliation. And that percentage in America right now stands at 20%. 20% of Americans click the none box in terms of religious affiliation. That number has doubled in the past 20 years. 20 years ago, 10% of the population clicked none in the religion category. Today it's 20%, and that is the fastest growing category of religion in the United States of America, the category known as the nuns. Now, of that number, of that percentage, uh, a good number still believe in God. There are a lot of folks who have no religious affiliation, but if you ask them, do you believe in God? They say, yes, I believe in God. Now, obviously, in that same 20%, there are some who do not believe in God at all, uh, or uh, they certainly have serious doubts about God. So let's start out with this uh, this proposition, believe in God, believe in God. So let me, let me just unpack this a little bit for us. And this is going to be, uh, I'm going to give you some information that I used to give my students at Bruton Parker when I taught uh, intro to New Testament and Old Testament and Christian theology. So if, if you'll bear with me just a little bit, I think this is some really important information. So here's what I want to share with you to begin with. First off is this, everybody believes that something has always existed. Everybody believes that something has always existed. Everybody. There isn't a person on earth who, well, let me back up and say, there isn't a person on earth who has thought through eternal existence who has not arrived at the conclusion that something that is here now has always existed. Now, among all of us who believe that something has always existed, you have a number of different opinions. For instance, some people believe that the material universe is that which has always existed, matter always existed. Other people believe that that something which has always existed is God. And then there are some people, I understand, who believe that both God and the material universe have always existed simultaneously. All right. Now, obviously, uh, people of faith, people who believe in monotheism, one God, people, those of us who are Christians, we believe in uh, God to be that which has always existed. But let's just take that third proposition that some people uh, evidently believe that both God and the material universe have always existed. Here's the problem with that, as, as I see it. If the material universe has always existed, then uh, it came into being, or it has always existed, its existence, outside of God. 
And that to me seems impossible. It would also mean that God had, has nothing to do with the oversight or little to do with the oversight of the material universe. That seems to be illogical to me. And so the next slide, the next thing I want to point out to you is that those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, we believe that God is that being who has always been here, who has always existed, God. Furthermore, we believe that this God has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, in such a way that Jesus is also God. Now, this gets a little complicated here. Uh, It's not that Jesus is a second God. He is the same God. The God we believe in, the God that the Bible teaches, is one God and only one God. But this one God reveals himself to us through three different persons. God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. You say, well, uh, explain that for me. I I can't do that. I I cannot do that. I don't believe there is a good explanation for it outside of the fact that the Bible, that is what the Bible teaches us, and we we simply take what the Bible says with regard to that, and we believe it. Jesus is God, and God is that one and only thing that has always existed. The universe has not always been here. Even the most uh, intellectual scholars, Stephen Hawking, for instance, who passed away uh, in the past year. Stephen Hawking, probably the greatest physicist, the greatest philosopher who's ever lived in terms of his intellectualism. He believed that the universe began at a single uh, point, at a single point that he called a singularity. And from that point, the universe uh, exploded and expanded. If you ask, he asked uh, Stephen Hawking, and someone did, they said, what, what was before that, that big bang, that big explosion? He says, I don't know. I have no idea what, if anything, was before it. But he says the universe began then. So the universe began. It has not always been here. But what about God? Uh, what can we say about God? Let me... Uh, Let me just simply say this to you, and and, and I want you to hear me very carefully. Of those three options, some people believe that the material universe has always been here. Some people believe that God is what's always been here. Some people believe it's God and the material universe. Wherever you land on those, it takes faith. Now, just listen to that. Wherever you land there, it takes faith faith. And here's why. Faith is believing in something, the definition for faith, believing in something without all the scientific evidence to prove it. All right, that's faith. That's the definition for faith. If you believe in God and you believe that God is that being who has always existed, you believe that, and I believe that, but there, I I believe it without any scientific proof. And I'll tell you what, you cannot prove scientifically that God exists. You also cannot prove scientifically that God doesn't exist. And so any of those propositions, if if you're someone who believes that only the material universe is, is that which has always existed, you're doing that based on faith, not science. If you believe God is that one who's always existed, you're believing that on faith, not science. If you believe that God and the universe are, have always, you're believing that on faith, not science, because you're believing in something that, that cannot be proven nor disproven. That's what we call faith. 
And so you might run across someone who says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God at all. And I'm not a person of faith. You might not believe in God, but you are a person of faith. How can I say that? Because if I don't believe in God, I'm still doing it on faith, not proof. Because you can't prove that God exists. You can't disprove that God exists. All right? So everything is about faith. Everything is about faith. Now, let's, let's talk about some arguments for the existence of God. We might not be able to prove that God exists, but there are some pretty strong arguments, I think, for the fact that God does exist. So let's, let's get right to them. First off, the Bible attests that God exists. The Bible attests to the existence of God. Now, let me tell you what the Bible doesn't do. The Bible does not explain to us how God came into being. The Bible does not describe for us the origin of God or the beginning of God. The reason for that is he didn't have a beginning. He's always been here. If he's always been here, you can't describe a beginning or an origin because there isn't one, right? Y'all with me? The Bible simply assumes the existence of God. For instance, the first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning God was already here. There is the assumption of the existence of God. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Again, John's opening verses uh, refer back, allude back to Genesis chapter 1. They assume the existence of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, the apostle Paul. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There is the assumption of the existence of God. Now, for many of us who love the Bible, that's enough. We don't need anything else. The Bible, some people say the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. I really don't like that statement because it makes, it, it makes the Bible much uh, too, too simplistic. Uh, the Bible, if the Bible says it, I do believe it, and it does settle it as long as we understand the Bible, what the Bible says correctly. And we'll deal with that in another one of these messages, but not today. For now, let's just, let's just take it that the Bible assumes the existence of God. But for a majority of people, the Bible alone is not enough. It may be enough for you and for me, but it's not enough for a growing majority of people that you and I meet every single day. So let's go into some other arguments. So that brings me to statement number two. Everything that began to exist, and let me underline, began to exist, everything that began to exist has a cause that brought it into existence. Everything that began to exist has a cause. Now here's what I didn't say. I didn't say everything that exists has a cause. I said everything that began to exist has a cause, okay? Very important distinction right there. I'm standing here beside a microphone stand. That microphone stand sometime not too long ago didn't exist. 
it came into being. The chair you are sitting on, it a few years ago did not exist. Somebody put it into being. That microphone stand did not create itself. The chair you're sitting on did not create itself. Somebody, somebody was instrumental in designing and building that microphone stand, the chair you're sitting on, the tile on the floor, the carpet I'm walking on, the microphone around my head, the uh, guitars on the stage, the, the sweater you're wearing, the shoes you're wearing, what the glasses you're wearing, the jewelry you have on, whatever, the car you drove. They began to exist. And everything that began to exist had a cause outside of its existence that brought it into being. The same thing is true of the material universe. I said Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, probably the most brilliant person intellectually who's ever lived, he said the universe had a beginning. Albert Einstein said the universe had a beginning. If the universe has a beginning, and I think they're right, then if it began to exist then everything that began to exist has a cause outside of it that brought it into being. If the universe began to exist, then something outside of the universe brought it into being. Y'all with me? Hello? Everything that began to exist has a cause. And, And the fact that the universe began to exist is a good argument for the existence of God because something smarter than the universe, bigger than the universe, outside the universe, brought the universe into existence. Number three, the orderly design of the universe suggests a designer, the orderly design of the universe. George Gallup, the famous statistician, once said this. He says, take the human body. He says, the chance that all the functions of a single individual would just happen is a statistical monstrosity, he said. Thomas Edison, no one can study chemistry and see the wonderful way in which certain elements combine with the nicety of the most delicate machine ever invented and not come to the inevitable conclusion that there is a big engineer who is running this universe. Our Our earth is so perfect. Now, we're not perfect, but our earth is so perfect. It is exactly, I'm talking exactly the right distance from the sun. It has exactly the right combination of elements in its atmosphere. There are, there are 26 different dimensionless constants. I know you, you probably, with the exception of maybe one or two or three people here, don't know what I'm talking about. Guess what? I don't know what I'm talking about. But I know that there are 26 dimensionless constants in our universe. They so rarely come together in the way that they are right here where our planet is. But those 26 constants have come together in such a way and in in such a condition that we can breathe, that we can live. If, if if, If our planet was just a few thousand miles further away from the sun or a few thousand miles closer to the sun, it wouldn't be possible to live. If any of those 26 constants got out of sync, we could not live. All 26 of them have to come together at the same time in the same way. And that is what's happened right here on earth. That sounds like a designer to me. In fact, listen to this. 
halfway between Palmetto and, and Fairburn, if you go Palmetto to Fairburn on 29, about halfway, if you look to the left, there's a mountain over there that didn't used to be there. You know what I'm saying? You know what it is? It's a man-made mountain. I call it Mount Garbage. You've heard me mention that before. Mount Garbage. It's a big old garbage dump and they have, it's, it's like a mountain over there. I've been wanting to climb it, but I haven't. But this big mountain, the chances that a tornado, an F1 tornado could come through Palmetto and Fairburn and sweep up Mount Garbage and form it into a fully operational 757 plane and sift that thing with the motor running on Interstate 85. What do you think the chances are that that could happen? I mean, so remote as to be impossible. But hear this. The chances of that happening, of a tornado whipping up Mount Garbage into the shape of a fully operational 757 are more likely to occur than for each of these 26 dimensionless constants to come together as they are right here, right now for us to survive. That doesn't happen by randomness. It happens because there must be a designer who's, who's bigger, who's more, more intelligent, who's more powerful than everything we see, who has brought all of this into existence. The orderly design of the universe suggests a designer, and that designer sure sounds to me a lot like God. Number four, the existence of God is the best explanation for universal moral standards. I know you've heard of C.S. Lewis, the great British scholar who uh, is deceased now, but he was an atheist for much of his life. And he rejected the idea of, of a God or a divine being because of all the evil and injustice that he saw in the world. By the way, of all the people who don't believe in God, the, the single most frequent reason that, that they give is they see the injustice in this world and God seemingly doing nothing about it. Let me tell you, they've got good, good reasons for their lack of belief in God. And C.S. Lewis also rejected the idea of God because of the injustice. But then he started asking himself, where did I get the idea of, of justice anyway? Where did I got, get the idea of what must be right and what must be wrong? How do I base the fact that I look out and I see things and I say, oh, that's, that's injustice or that's evil and that's righteousness, that's justice. Where did I get that idea, C.S. Lewis said. And he, he, <laughs> he bumfuzzled himself. Here's what he said. He said, a man calls a line, a line, a crooked line, because he has some idea of a straight line. Where do you get the idea of a straight line? Because otherwise you couldn't call a crooked line crooked unless you had an idea of the straight line. He says, whenever I call something unjust, I must have some idea of what is just. Where did I get that? And C.S. Lewis concluded that he had to have gotten it from God. You see, everybody in every culture has certain, uh, certain moral standards of what is right and wrong. We may, di- we may not agree on all of them, but there are certain ones that, that everybody who's normal universally agrees upon. 
we universally agree for the most part that it's, that it's, not, it's not right to kill someone, that it's not right, right to molest someone, that it's not right to lie about someone for the most part. Where do we get those moral standards? C.S. Lewis and many people who are greater thinkers than, than, uh, than certainly I am, they believe that we get these moral standards from God. Finally, the existence of God gives true meaning to life. Think about this. Think if there's no God. Just think about that possibility. If there is no God, then there is no afterlife. If there's no afterlife, then there's no heaven nor hell. If there's no heaven or hell, then, then the, the loved ones that you have known who believed in Jesus, who have died, you will never see them again, nor will they see you again. If there is no God, then at the end of this life, when we die, we cease to exist. And whatever we did will be remembered just by a minuscule, small few people. Most people will never know that we came and left. Our, our lives are meaningless if there's no God. You say, well, it does have meaning. We're here to make the best of the life we have. Oh, great. Great. How many people, what percentage of people who've ever lived on earth are remembered for anything? Very few. There aren't that many George Washingtons, Abraham Lincolns, and Albert Einsteins, and, and Rosa Parkses. There aren't that many of them. The vast majority of us die, and when people walk through the cemetery, we don't even know who they are. Life is meaningless if there is no God. But, on the other hand, if God exists, then there's something beyond this life. There is afterlife. There's a place called heaven. And there's a place called heaven that we can go if we believe in Jesus. If God is real, then afterlife is real. Then all of a sudden, there is an added richness and meaning to this earthly life that, that is astounding. If there is a God. I believe there is. I believe there's a God because I believe God gives meaning to our lives. He makes this life more than what it ever otherwise would be. So no wonder the psalmist says twice, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. By the way, that verse can be taken two ways. It can be translated two ways. It can be taken just like you see it there. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There, God doesn't exist. But if you know anything about Hebrew, you know it has no vowels, no punctuation. The Hebrew of the Bible has no vowels, no punctuation. And instead of reading it from left to right, you read it from right to left. And there are certain words that have to be added in order to give some sense of clarity to what the text says. So, for instance, if you're reading a King James Version, you will notice probably that the words there is are in italics. The reason they're in italics is because they're not in the original text at all. They're not in the earliest manuscript copies we have. There is no words, there is. The, the text literally says, the fool said, says in his heart, no God. 
Those words were added for clarity. So it could be that, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God doesn't exist. But it also is equally true that the fool is someone who believes in God, believes that God exists, but he says to God, no, God. Who's the biggest fool? The one who says that God doesn't exist or, or is the biggest fool the, God, the person who says, oh, God, I know you exist. But I'm going to say no to you. Wow. There's a lot more to be said here. Because I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we all believe in any God. But let's just suffice it to say right now. Believe in God. And as a Christian pastor and as a Christian myself... I urge you not only to believe in God, but to believe in the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. We'll say more about that later. Believe in God. Because the fool says in his heart, no God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great God you are. You've made... A relationship with you to be founded on faith, not proof. And that means that we believe in you based on not what we can prove, but what we sense in our hearts is true about you, what we read in your word to be true about you. And so, Lord, I I thank you for the opportunity to believe in you. And I pray that everybody in this room will believe in you. And, Lord, I know this is church. We're in church. And everybody here, we just assume that everybody believes in you. But we also know that's not always the case. Many of us who are committed believers, yet we go through these periods of doubt. Help us when we doubt. Doubt's not a bad thing. It's not an enemy. It normally is something that spurns us on to deeper faith. I pray, Lord, for those who might be here who've never been saved, never surrendered to you, never just made the conscious decision to believe in you, Lord Jesus, and be saved. I pray that someone here today would come and believe in you. I pray that this altar will be a place of worship and prayer and struggle and commitment right here in this place right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, let's stand as the band plays. If God is leading you to make a decision, if he's leading you to come to the altar, if he's leading you to make a decision where you are, listen to what he says. Don't say no to God.